Welcome to Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve podcast, where you get a guaranteed return on investment of your time as we cut your learning curve with the information you can apply to your farming operation immediately. Extreme Ag, we've already made the mistakes, so you don't have to. Managing your farm's water resources is a critical component to a successful and sustainable farming operation. Advanced Drainage Systems helps farmers just like you increase their yields up to 30% with their technologically advanced water management products. Visit ADSPipe.com to see how they can keep your business flowing. Now, here's your host, Damian Mason. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, with a great program for you today. A little departure from our normal programs where we talk a lot about on-farm fertility issues, practices, business things there on the farm. We're going a little bit away from the farm to bring it back to the farm. We're going to uh, my connection, uh, our connection uh, out in New Jersey. That's right. This guy has a background as a floor trader. He's going to talk about the markets, particularly as it relates to ethanol. He is Pete Meyer, the Platt's head of grain, oil seed, and advanced feed stocks and analytics with a company called S&P Global. They are Commodity Insights. And if you're watching this, you see that behind his head on his backdrop. Pete, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Damien. I appreciate it. Yeah. So essentially, the the extreme ag format was we say we're cutting the curve, we're shortening your learning curve. We do a lot of on-farm stuff. We do a lot of trials. And I wanted to bring you on as a bit of a departure because everything we produce, obviously, we get wound up about bushels. We get wound up about, you know, in agriculture, it's about bushels, gallons, pounds, all that kind of stuff. But the stuff has to go somewhere. And we're going to talk specifically about ethanol. Ethanol became a thing with gasohol back in the first energy or second energy crisis that we had in the 1970s, early 80s. And then it kind of was hanging around out there. Then it was about the year 2000, 2001, maybe I started hearing a lot about ethanol, investments in ethanol plants, farmers pooling their money and building ethanol facilities. A company called Poet came to town. We've got three ethanol facilities within about 30 miles of my farm in northeastern Indiana. Ethanol is a great consumer of our product. About 35 to 38% of the corn produced in the United States of America goes into ethanol. Now, it doesn't go there and die. Some of it comes back out on the backside as dried distillers grains after they've extracted the carbohydrates to make the alcohol. Um, What I want from you is big picture perspective And I'm going to add my perspective about why this matters to our people, the extreme ag followers that listen and watch our stuff, our corn and soybean producers, they are wheat producers, they are farmers, and they hear a lot about the markets. But we, you and I, need to look ahead because I frankly think that ethanol was a short-term solution to a long-term problem. Short-term solution, meaning it took 35% of our corn off the market, but the long-term problem is we've had too much corn and also we're gonna have electric vehicles. So talk to me about all of that, Mr. Pete. Well, you and I you and I lived through 2007, 2008 when ethanol came in and we, we just, and all of a sudden food versus fuel was a conversation. Then in 2012 with the drought, again, the food versus fuel conversation. So we've we've seen these ups and downs in the ethanol market, but you know we're not going back to MTBE uh, as a carcinogenic substance, which was the oxygen in um, 
in gasoline that was replaced by ethanol. And then the ethanol lobby started to push a little bit, push a bit of it. We should have a little bit more ethanol, a little bit more ethanol, a little bit more ethanol. And the reason that they push for more ethanol is because these ethanol plants got, got more efficient, right? In the beginning, an ethanol plant got maybe 2.6 gallons per bushel uh, of corn. Now, according to my friends in the ethanol business, if you're not producing three gallons per bushel, you're not in the game. So now all of a sudden, yeah, we were using, as you, as you mentioned, a third of the crop. Uh, and now all of a sudden we're producing more ethanol with less. And now you have the proliferation of EVs. This is a problem. I read a tweet over the weekend, Damien, that said, if you're going to buy a new car within the next two years and you plan on driving that car for eight to 10 years, that'll be the last internal combustion engine car that you drive. And okay. Now, that, I spoke, by the I, way, that, I just want to run those numbers again. It, we're recording this, dear listener, yeah. on April 10th of the year 2022. So if you listen to this, because these are evergreen, you know, let's say you're listening to this one year from now. Right. My man, Pete Meyer, just says, if you buy a car today, new car today, uh, and, and you drive it for the next eight to 10 years, because that's what you normally are getting even more than that now out of a modern car, it's the last internal combustion car you're going to buy. So it's going to take you to the year 2030, 2032, and then you're going to go to the car lot. If there even are car lots or you order it on a kiosk or online, and the next car is going to not be an internal combustion engine. That's what you just read today. Well, what I, this was a tweet that was out there and I, I don't mean to, to pick at it, but really what the date is, we have to look at is 2035. So the, the tweet was, if you buy a car within the next two years and you drive it for eight to 10, so let's, let's call it 13 year difference. So a few of my farmer friends like, oh, that's baloney. There's no way this and that. You have to know that last year, at the end of last year, General Motors, Mercedes, Ford, all the big auto companies said that they were going to stop producing internal combustion engines by the year 2035 in new cars. Now, that in, it, in itself is something that people, you know, may not think is going to happen because it was 14 years in the future. And we all know, Damien, that people throw out these grandiose kind of uh, projections. But if they buy into this, this is a problem. Now, we believe that by 2025, even within the next three years, that the proliferation of EVs is going to flatten your demand curve for ethanol. So if we had had this conversation a year or two ago and I, we started to talk about renewable fuels and renewable diesel, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, I would have been very, very nervous about corn acres because it would have said, well, we need more, we need more vegetable oils. But the fact of the matter is, is that at the same time now, we have this new industry with sustainable aviation fuel. Now, sustainable aviation fuel was, was thought to be primarily uh, made by, again, vegetable oils. But last year, ADM, which is one of your top five ethanol producers in the country, right? It's, it's Valero and Poet, as you mentioned earlier, and ADM, top three, said that by 2025, they're going to divert 50%, 50% of their ethanol production to this company called Jivo. Now, Jivo is a client of ours, and okay, full, full disclosure, but Jivo now is going to convert ethanol into sustainable aviation fuel. There's another company out there called Lanza Jet. Now, Lanza actually has a, has a facility in, in Northwest Indiana there. Lanza Jet is also now talking about uh, uh, producing uh, sustainable aviation fuel from ethanol. 
When we talk to our internal engineers here at S&P, they say, yep, good product. They can get it done. When we talk to airlines like United Airlines, United Airlines says, yep, we love it. Keeps the fuel system clean, burns nice, whatever. Currently at the moment, you can only run a plane on 50% of sustainable aviation fuel. So United Airlines had this flight from Chicago to Reagan uh, Airport in Washington, D.C. a few months ago. And they ran one engine on SAF, on sustainable aviation fuel, and the other on, on, on regular jet fuel. They needed a special dispensation from the, uh, from the FAA to run that engine because at the moment, it's only 50%. Yep. So they, they got it, ran good. Not not a problem. No big surprise. To, no big surprise to anyway. My point here, though, is with proliferation of EVs, and if we do have if we do have um, this internal combustion engine, uh, let's just let's just call it lack lack of production or the end, end of production of the internal yeah, combustion yeah. engine. The fact Pro, that it prohibi- is almost that, be a, almost a prohibition uh, is what we were correct. thinking. But yes, either way, sustainable sustainable aviation fuel will will rely on corn and sustainable aviation fuel will make renewable diesel demand look like a backyard barbecue now why are why are airlines interested in sustainable aviation fuel well as you know damien the big acronym on wall street is esg environment environmental social, social and governance governance sustainable fuel checks off that e yeah. All right. Before we get too into this, let's go back on a couple of numbers there. And I do want to talk a lot more about sustainable aviation fuel. Essentially, you just in very short order just told our listeners that, yep, the ethanol thing, Damien's right. It was a short term solution to a long term problem. Now, I always said the long term problem, because I started saying this 10 years ago, was that we had too much corn. That's not the case this year. This is some of the shortest, thinnest stocks we've seen in a long, long time, right? And that's generally been unusual. I'm old enough to remember growing up there on the farm in Indiana, as I tell my audiences, the PIC program. Some of the younger listeners right now are saying, what's Damien talking about? The PIC program, if you're unfamiliar, and if you're old, you may be nodding your head. In the 1980s, we had so damn much corn, (laughs) and it was about $1.60 a bushel, that we created a thing called the Payment in Kind program, PIC. And the idea was you would get paid in corn to not plant corn. PIC, P-I-K, Payment in Kind. And the idea was you would double burn through the inventory of corn. By paying farmers with corn to not plant corn, we burned down the inventory. And it worked for a little while. And then, of course, when the program went away, farmers did what they love to do, which is go out and plant corn. And boom, we had $1.60 corn all over again. And then we just uh, offset it with what they call the loan deficiency payment through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where we uh, set basically a price floor for corn. So we had all this corn. And then the ethanol thing came along. And then in 2004, am I correct here, Pete? 2004, we created the Renewable Fuel Standard to not only encourage, but to really require a certain amount of ethanol production. Again, I'm all for it. Remember, my farm ground rents for a decent price because there are three ethanol plants within 30 miles of my farm. So I'm not anti-ethanol. I'm a realist about ethanol. I said that it's probably going to go away because it's a political volleyball food versus fuel has happened twice. Now it's getting caught in the crosshairs of another political volleyball, electric car requirements. So there's my thoughts, Pete, take that and expand. Well, I mean, you also, you know, the, the global tightness in corn has a lot to do with Ukraine as well. I mean, we cannot, you cannot just write them off and say, okay, you know, uh, I mean, there's a, 
there's a, there's a lot uh, there's a lot going on there. The other problem with the glut of corn is is the fact that uh, none of your seed guys are saying to yourself are saying to yourself, hey, we got this new genetics and and it's actually going to produce less corn, so we want you to buy it, right? I mean, <laughs> when you look. When you, uh, I think 10 years ago or whatever, I was at the then Pioneer Lab in, in, in Johnson, Iowa, and the guy said, ah, you know, don't worry about it, Pete. We'll be at 175 by 2025 and 200 by 2030. It is a national corn. And I'm thinking to myself, no way. Well, you know what? You just can't gamble against those guys. So everything is kind of, kind of moving, you know, in that direction where we are creating more corn. Now, the world will need corn, Damien. I mean, yeah. the, world, the world is going to need corn regardless of – of what happens here uh, in the U.S., what we see in Brazil, um, you know, we see more soybeans being planted. Brazilian farmers love to plant uh, soybeans, and U.S. farmers love to plant corn. I totally get it; it, it hasn't changed for years. Right. But this is, uh, yeah, this is this has become a, a bit of an issue. And and you know, one of the things is that um, you know the reason that we have these shortages and with Ukraine and everything else is that you know we. We are we are faced with a JIT, if you want to call it on the acronym, a just-in-time economy, and it just doesn't work. So, you know, that just-in-time economy is okay when you're short corn, but it's not great if you have a lot of corn. Yeah, so uh, going back to my uh, earlier assessment, just because this is a, a fun talk, you know, again, and, and as my farm audiences realize I'm in no way anti-farm nor my anti-corn. I just say that this was going to be an issue anyhow, because it relied a bit on political um, uh, favor. It, it relied a bit on uh, the renewable fuel standards saying you're going to blend a certain amount into the mix. See, the, RFS, so the RFS is just a flawed thing from the start, right? I mean, and we saw it during COVID. Why would you all of a sudden prescribe a certain number of gallons when you don't know how big the gasoline pool is going to be, right? Then all of a sudden you create RIN traders. And, and look, I'm, I'm pro-ethanol as well. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, now you create RIN traders that are, that are trading these renewable identification numbers and making a secondary market in that. And it just becomes so complicated. If we would have just had a, a percentage of the gasoline pool, we would not be talking about these small refiner exemptions that everybody is, is no. claiming. We would just know that during COVID, we didn't use much gasoline. So, okay, so we're going to blend 10%. It also lends itself now. Everybody's talking about E15, 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 year-round E15. You know what? If we would have had E10 as a mandate, we could have pressed the button and turned that into E12 tomorrow. Mm. But now we don't mm. because we're still fighting about Oh, you didn't you didn't blend in as many gallons. Well, I didn't sell as much gasoline. Well, you know, no, I'm sorry. The mandate says you have to blend the gallons, so now you got to go buy a RIN. It's it for, for compliance reasons. The whole idea behind the RFS, I thought, was was well natured, so to speak. But the way they put it into practice is just awful. Just give me a percentage of the gasoline pool that has to be ethanol. In this case, ten percent. And this whole thing about blending more E15, E20, E50, E80. Yeah. If I go to Iowa, if I go to Indiana, if I go to Illinois and I spend a lot of time in those states, I can pick and choose for my truck, right? What do I want to pay? What, what can I do? It's all about consumer choice. But we saw in Chicago a few years ago, they wanted to give the consumer choice, but then you have to put blender pumps in and you have to put sink a tank in your gas station that's going to have ethanol in it and right. another tank that's going to have gasoline so you can blend at the pump. And the, and the operators in, in Chicago are saying, well, I've got my... 1200 square feet here where am i going to blend another, how am i going to put another tank in the ground so 
it's just that the, the whole thing, the whole thing really about, you know, extending past E10 or E12, whatever you want to call it, into E15, E85, whatever. I mean, that works well at a rural setting, but it does not work well in an urban setting. So the uh, you and I are both of the opinion that as much as we want to support ethanol, we're concerned about its longevity. We're concerned about its ability to be around for the long haul. And this obviously bring it back to our listeners who are producers farmers are saying, well, wait a minute, then does that mean that corn goes from, which is now what, seven bucks? Does it go down? Uh, instead of 92 million acres of corn production in the year 2022, which I think, is that the estimate right now? Something like that? 90, That's 90. their estimate. Our, our estimate is about 90, 90.2. No, their okay. estimate is actually, actually their estimate is 89 and change. Our estimate's about 90.2. Yeah. Okay. So let's call it 90 million acres. So the person listening right now says, geez, Pete, are we going to not need 90 million acres five years from now when those hypothetical electric cars are more prolif- you know, proliferating or 10 years from now? Are we going to be farming only 45 million corn acres? Um, I don't think that's the case, but I want your thoughts on that. No, I think that, you know, I mean, last year when we looked at prices and we looked at what was going on, we thought that you could you could plant maybe 183 million acres of corn and soybeans combined. Last year, they came in at 180 and a half, and we had a perfect planting season. This year, the planting season is a little bit late. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, we're not making new farmland. Right, Damien? I mean, we're losing well, farmland every 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 year to urban sprawl. You know, whether it's whether it's the the $50 generals that they're built that they're building every week, it seems like, or, you know, new highways through Iowa or or new highways through other other areas. The fact of the matter is that the the, the pie is getting smaller. Now that is compensated by yields being higher. Right. And the fact of the matter is that farmers have become very, very smart and know how to do more with less. So in my opinion, yeah, the world is always going to need corn. We may not need it for ethanol and we may end up using more more vegetable oil than we are using using ethanol in our in our fuel supply but the fact of the matter is is that you know there'll, there'll always be global de- global demand for corn and we've seen how fragile that is with what just happened in ukraine yeah so we did prop up we give a shot in the arm to corn consumption with the you know the proliferation of ethanol but now we got the other the, the, now i'm watching masters coverage just like you did this weekend about every other commercial was John Hamm, the actor from uh, Mad Men, uh, voicing uh, an ad spot for Mercedes-Benz that used to be uh, all about speed and power and precision and all that. Now it's all about electric, 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 electric. So this thing is coming. Somewhat corporations are feeling the footsteps of government. You know, this began with Al Gore back in the what the 2000, his whole book about uh, inconvenient truths and internal combustion engines being the worst thing in the world, et cetera the shit's hitting the fan. I mean, it really is. And so if I'm a corn producer and a lot of my stuff's been, 35% of my stuff's been going to ethanol, what can I expect five years from now? Uh, five years five years from now, I think it'll it'll still be okay. But I think what you have to do is you have to be, uh, you, ha- you know, as a, as a savvy farmer, you have to watch how many EVs come on, right? Whether it's the Ford F-150 Lightning or or further, further down the line, I mean, uh, you know, other, other cars and Mercedes and, and, and the rest of them, the Ford Mustang, the, the rest of those, I think you really have to start to pay attention and see how welcome they are by the, by the consumer. I realize that's a lot to digest, 
but you know, five years down the line, sure, I can I can see us uh, uh, producing uh, or or planting more soybean acres than corn acres. But it's really that 2035 number. We have to be the 2035 uh, year date. We really have to be careful the closer we get to that. It's only 13 years away. So if these if these auto companies are still committed and we still start to see these ads or see even more ads, and we saw them during the Super Bowl as well. You talked about the Masters Super Bowl was like ad after ad after ad about electric vehicles, you know. But we have to create that energy somewhere too, Damien. So Will they be smart enough that they can convert, you know, corn into electricity? Will they be smart enough that they can, you know, that not everybody's going to accept a nuclear power plant in their backyard? We saw what happened in Texas last year with the electric electric problem, right? So I, I have this conversation with people all the time where they're like, oh, we're pro-EV, we're pro-EV, we're pro-EV. Right, so that means you're pro-nuclear. Uh, no, not really, because that's a problem for the environment. Well, it could be a problem for the environment mm -hmm. if it's run well, it's probably not. But so we think that, you know, we see actually electricity being generated by by a sustainable by by crops such as corn uh, by the time we get to 2035. While we're on the subject of ethanol, I keep, I keep we go a lot about this. And again, I'll bring it back to the farm level. But these things and this is where I always preach to my audiences and, and you know, put it in my, my, my in my book and I've put it in everything that I've ever communicated that. We must realize that we can't keep talking to ourselves when we're only 1% of the population out here in ag or 7% is peripherally involved in ag because we, we do work in a consumer marketplace. And that consumer marketplace is, is bought into this thing. You know, the average consumer in the suburbs of, uh, you know, New Jersey or wherever believes that an electric vehicle, just you plug it into the wall. And, and that's what, you know, that's what happens. Um but we're seeing well it's it's good it's good if you only have 300 miles to drive right but i mean in the midwest and in and in, in farm country in south dakota for instance i mean you know 300 miles isn't isn't going to get you get you anywhere so no right that, so that, that, you know it's not tremendously practical for uh, the, the 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 big the big uh, the big west or midwest so here's the question then uh, a lot of forces lining up against ethanol the atlantic ran a story that was saying that uh, because of the ethanol support from government and the renewable fuel standards, people are starving now because in their assertion, of course, the Atlantic is probably very well read by that uh, county to the north of you. It's read principally by affluent people who lean left, who are well-educated, and they believe what they read. The Atlantic said that ethanol is starving people because we're planting corn instead of wheat. Well, that was going on in the United States of America long before the first ethanol plant cropped up in Indiana. I can assure you we were doing the switchover. There's a lot of forces, I guess, against ethanol, even if they're misguided and ill-informed. That's where I see the problem. Your thoughts? 15 years ago, uh, I worked for a company called Lehman Brothers, which you may, may or may not remember before it went down. And I think, and, I, think uh, that, I think my tax dollars bailed them out or had to bail out a bunch well, of I other... I don't, I don't have anything to show for it, I'm afraid. But anyway, <laughs> we, used to, we used to have in our staff ex-CIA analysts. They would hire CIA analysts. And they would come in, and they would just give us the global look. And I, I became friendly with one. She was a very, very bright woman. And she said, hey, can you come down to Langley with us? We want to have a meeting. We're bringing some hedge fund clients down. I said, okay. So we go down to Langley. We're sitting in the in the whatever the chairman's room, whatever, whatever that is. And they come in and they're talking and I'm sitting in the seat to the back, just kind of listening to what the hedge fund clients and Lehman Brothers were saying at the time, this and this, all they kept talking about is energy security, energy security, energy security, energy security. 
finally a little old me at six foot three, I stand up in the back, raise my hand. And they said, yes, sir. I said, does anybody give a damn about food security? And the room went as quiet as we, we just were there for a few seconds. And I think if there's anything that we can, we can take from this is that, you know, the Russians understand food security. The Chinese understand food security. Mm. Us in, in the Western world, we don't understand food security because we've never gone through this. And now we see what's going on in Ukraine. We see what's going on with these food shortages. I have relatives. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm first generation Dutch. So I have relatives in the Netherlands. There's no cooking oil in the stores anymore. There's no flour in the stores anymore. So, yeah, we may end up moving away a bit from our energy independence or our dependence on corn for energy and more go back to what it was initially, which was a, a food source or a protein source for animals in this net. So, I, I you know, it's the dynamics on it are, are really just un, un, unbelievable. I mean, we would have never thought this would have happened just now. And, and is this is this a blip? Is this just is this just the way it is for the because Russia, Ukraine, we already had a little bit of a weather problem in the south, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of disruption coming out of covid uh, container boxes aren't getting here from China. Is this a blip or are we going to be we're going to be in a real tumultuous situation one and two years from now on inventory of uh, commodity? I, th I think it'll it'll take quite a few years to, to to play its way out. I mean, let's just look at. I saw I saw a story the other day. Walmart is hiring truck drivers with one hundred and ten one hundred and ten thousand dollars. Headline: Wall Street Journal for a truck driver at Walmart. When we believe there's not inflationary pressures, that's truck drivers always did okay. But I don't think a Walmart truck driver. What do you think that represents? A thirty percent bump. Uh, at, at least, right? If you have a CDL, you can basically write your own write your own ticket anywhere. So, you know, that, you know, I talked about a little bit earlier, that's this just-in-time economy. And, and recently, I drove all the way to Champaign, uh, Champaign, Illinois, and the amount of warehouses that are being built along the side of the interstates is, I, I've never seen such, such, such building like that. And I think that people are starting to understand that this just-in-time economy does not work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, you know, when we, when we look at, is it a blip? Well, it's, it's, it could be a blip, but I don't think it's a one or two year blip. Maybe it's a five year blip or, or right. something like that. Cause it, it's going to take some time to, to, I, I uh, agree to with get you. us out of this problem. I agree with you back to ethanol and then evolving into sustainable aviation fuels. So I'm a farmer. I want to make sure that the, the extreme ag followers that are keeping up with this, while it's been a great discussion, I want to make sure we bring it back to them and their interest, which is why they tune in here to further their business they're going to have a really good year. I know we've heard that inputs are up, but if we can catch the right weather, there's going to be a really good year with these commodity prices. And you can say, well, the ethanol plants are churning it out also, right? Um, what should they think happens, you know, a few years from now as ethanol goes away? Does sustainable aviation fuel pick up where ethanol gets dropped off? It will, it will make a huge impact. But when you talk to the airlines, they're also pragmatic about it. And, and most of the airlines are clients of ours as well, so we talk to them quite a bit. So they are also looking at alternatives to just corn-based ethanol. They're looking at wood chips and the rest of the stuff. Now, we've all heard this before, right? Switchgrass. Oh, we're going to turn switchgrass into ethanol. We're going to turn whatever. Biochar. Biochar. We've, we've heard right. that. You know, but there are companies out there like Nestle, not Nestle, a Singapore-based Singapore company, and they're doing a lot of work with turning plastics into, into fuel and that sort of stuff. So, 
you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to, hard to be, you know, we're sitting in the, in these very volatile times. I mean, certainly uh, the price of corn, you know, let's, let's put it this way. Um, six months ago or so, I was having a conversation with one of my best friends in the business, who's the chief ags economist at Corteva. And he said, what do you think of corn price? I said, I can make a fundamental case for $4 corn. I can make a fundamental case for $6 corn. So he said, okay, we agree. We have a fundamental case for $5 corn. I said, yeah, that's right. Now I can't make that case below $6 anymore. Right. But the question always is, is that, you know, farmers are not like the chicken producers, right? But the chicken producers are the, are the first group that over, uh, overproduces. Ethanol did the same thing. A phenomenal uh, fourth quarter last year where I'm sure ethanol guys were having the, the yuckety yucks at the Christmas party talking about private jets. Right. And now mm -hmm. all of a sudden we have record high stocks that are as high as they were uh, during, during the COVID period. And they're not having that conversation anymore because the profit margin has gone down from a dollar to let's say 10 or 12 cents. It's still positive, but to, you know, to, so to clarify, to clarify, just for the listener, record high stocks, you mean record high inventories of ethanol correct. sitting, sitting in inventory. Yeah. Okay. Correct. So, so, you know, there's, there's plenty of ethanol around. Now you start to look at gasoline prices. You start to look at crude oil prices. You start to see what's going on in China currently. And as you mentioned earlier, we are having this conversation the, the second week of April. So don't know how long it's going to last, but already now we're starting to see some, some demand destruction there. So, I mean, as far as prices are concerned, we do see, I don't think that $7 corn is here to stay. I think $6 corn is probably okay for the next two years. And then after that, we have to understand that it's probably going to be a $450 to $5 commodity. 450 to five after rampant inflation run up, even though we were told it's transitory. I've disagreed with that ever since I found out what the word was supposed to mean. Uh, in, in all of my economics classes, they never used that word because because uh, there's no such thing as it's not temporary. By the way, transitory means temporary. Well, you know, cancer is temporary until uh, right. <laughs> it kills you. Um, but inflation you, leads to inflation leads to a recession, and then and then what do we do with it? Uh, you well, we're gonna are we gonna demand less corn though? No, what usually happens the corn you're saying going down to 450. My point is, uh, 450 is the new dollar 60. Um, because yeah. I think all, all of our costs are going to be up at such a high level that 450 is the new dollar 60. At 450, we might need to trigger the new LDP, which is what they did 20 some years ago on loan deficiency payments. Uh, your input which price is essentially for, a price floor. Right. Your input prices for fertilizer and diesel and that sort of stuff are going to have to have a reset here as well. Right. They, yeah. they, they just, this, this growth is not sustainable. Now the seed guys, of course, the seed guys missed out last fall when they priced their stuff, they're going to want more money for it next year. So yeah, that's going to keep that price up in that $6 range as far as, as far as I'm concerned, but it may not, it may not help your profit margin given the fact that your seed company is going to ask more for the seed because they did not participate in this last rally. So if I'm a corn producer right now recording and thinking about this, uh, you're going to tell me ethanol is okay for the next few years, but it's just, there's, it's not that we're anti, it's just, there ain't no way around it. Uh, the, the Priuses don't burn ethanol. And um, unless they make the switch that we start generating electricity for the home via ethanol, and then we also want to cheer on sustainable aviation fuel, but that's completely independent. There's no government regulation requiring that. In fact, there's government regulation saying you can't use too much of it in your blend, right? Right. But there are, but there is a move towards certain airports that you will not be able to land at in, in, in Europe and other areas if you're not running on sustainable aviation fuel. This is coming to the U.S. 
sustainable aviation fuel is going to make renewable diesel look like a backyard barbecue because we're not we're not going to electric planes. We're not. I know United Airlines has bought some 16 passenger planes that they say that they claim can run on electricity just for the short hops. I get that. But the fact that, again, you know, look at the electric grid in Texas uh, last year when they had the when they had the storm. You think to yourself, oh, my God, how is that going to be happening? And American Airlines has their biggest hub there in Dallas, Fort Worth. So, you know, that that the um, so that the sustainable aviation fuel is the one. And we think that, you know, sustainable aviation fuel, though, is, is going to have a much, much slower kind of ramp up than we see in renew renewable diesel. And the reason for that is that renewable diesel has been embraced by California, Washington, and the state of Oregon through their LCFS, which is a low carbon fuel standard. And they pay a lot of money to these guys to, um, uh, to, put, to, to push renewable diesel into that market. So much money, in fact, Damien, so much money that a company like Nestle, who I mentioned earlier, again, that's Nestle without the L, Nestle, exports as much used cooking oil, we call Yuko, as much used cooking oil as they can get out of the U.S., it goes to Singapore, it becomes refined into renewable diesel, and then comes all the way back into the California market, and they still make money. Think about that way, for you're, a second. You're, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself. Because, dear listener, I asked Pete if he would do me a favor and talk about two things, and we're going to drop it in two episodes, one being all about ethanol and its future, and he did a great job outlining that. And I said, would you do another one on this outlook for a big opportunity for agriculture? And that's, of course, renewable diesel, which we're going to get to in the next episode, which we're about to record. But in the meantime, I want you to be able to get on your way because it's been about a half hour, and I know that you have places to be. So, dear listener, this is Extreme Ash Cutting the Curve. Our guest is Pete Myers. You can find him at Pete.Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, at spglobal.com. If you should have any questions, he's a great guest. He's on a bunch of different ag media. He does the Pro Farmer Tour uh, tour in the Midwest every summer. He's uh, Platt's head of grain, oilseed, and advanced feedstocks analytics at a company called S&P Global Commodity Insights. Pete, you're awesome. Thank you, Damien. I appreciate it, and I appreciate your listeners' time as well. Got it. So next time, uh, check out all the great stuff at extremeag.farm. Share it with your farming and non-farming friends alike. And uh, you know what? Be sure if there's any topic you'd like to hear more about, send your uh, information or your, your request to support at extremeag.farm and we'll make sure we get to it. Till next time, he's Pete. I'm Damien. It's Cutting the Curve. That's a wrap for this episode of Cutting the Curve, but there's plenty more. Check out extremeag.farm where you can find past episodes, instructional videos, and articles to help you squeeze more profit out of your farm. Cutting the Curve is brought to you by Advanced Drainage Systems, the leader in agriculture water management solutions.